0: A mysterious zero day in Microsoft Office. We'll tackle that subject and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin.
1: Hello, Douglas. That was a very punchy intro this week. You didn't even mention the ancillary subjects. Just straight in with the O day.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, because we're going to change things up just a little bit. We're going to tackle a big story and then promote some of the auxiliary stories. But the big story this week is this Microsoft bug. But before we start, let's delve in with a little tech history. I would like to bring it to your attention that this week in 1992, the Apple Newton was officially unveiled at the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago.
1: Not to be confused with the Fig Newton.
0: No, that was was developed before and still delicious, by the way. (laughs) Uh, it, It took a year and a half to actually hit shelves, and its high price combined with buggy software meant that it didn't live up to the hype, but it did give us the term personal digital assistant, or PDA, and it paved the way for ARM processors. The chip inside the Newton was called the Acorn Risk Machine, which blossomed into a company called Advanced Risk Machines, now simply known as ARM. So not all products need to be hits. Sometimes they open the door for the advancement of technology, Paul?
1: Acorn. Oh, I remember Acorn fondly. My first real computer that I owned all by myself was an Acorn Atom. But that Newton, oh dear, Doug. <laughs> I remember at the time they were saying 97% accurate handwriting recognition. And I remember thinking, that's a lot. Until I tried one, the thing is, what that means is that you will have at least one mistake in most words, somewhere. Like, you actually have to get surprisingly close to 100 for it to be genuinely useful. And, of course, we didn't have the touchy screens then, did we? You needed a stylus, as I remember.
0: Yeah, I remember using one uh, when I was working at Best Buy and thinking, just being kind of underwhelmed by it. So a necessary step in the process. Might not have been a breakout hit for Apple, but uh, good on them for releasing it and uh, paving the way for future digital assistants. And uh something of an assistant in Microsoft office the uh, the internet is a buzz, as you say, with news of a zero day remote code execution this
1: is uh this is a big one. It is indeed Doug for quite a while twenty four to forty eight hours after the news really got going on the internet. it didn't have a cVE number, and so uh, a security researcher called Kevin Beaumont decided, oh well, I'll have to find a name for it and he <laughs> could have he could have Called it something that reflected what it did, but I don't know whether he was a maybe a product manager in an earlier life or a project manager. You know, where he had you have to come up with a sorry Doug, where he had to come up with some weird name. But the file that kickstarted the brouhaha that's going on now, I think, came out over the weekend on VirusTotal. It was noted on Twitter by a Japanese researcher, and it had the name the file that was uploaded to VirusTotal that showed this. Bug in all its glory was 05 2022. Well, you can see what that is, right? That's a date Dash 0438. What's 0438? Nobody knows. So, Kevin Beaumont, I, I'm guessing he went to a search engine. Tell me something about 0438. Well, it could be an Australian postal code or a South African postal code, therefore digits. But he hit upon the fact that it's a telephone dialing code <laughs> for a place called Folina which is in Italy, not far from Venice. And so he called it the Folina bug. <laughs> uh, which right. is, so if you've heard that name, it's a useful search term, but it actually has no known connection with the Venice region or with Italy. <laughs> it was just a bit of a joke. It now has an official designation. So if you want to go looking for it, it's CVE-2022-2022. Three zero one nine zero. And I think the fairest way to describe it, Doug, is it's a slightly weird proprietary URL feature in Windows meets slightly possibly useful sort of feature in Microsoft's diagnostic toolkit, which is how you troubleshoot apps. Feature plus feature equals bug oh dear hmm
0: okay so what is it what actually happens how does it work
1: in the not proof of concept because i believe this has been used in the wild for booby trap documents it turns out that you can create an office file in this case it was this 05 2022 0438.doc file you can create a document file that includes a url that refers to some remote content now as dangerous as that sound, it needn't be if it's just, say, some HTML that needs to be brought in. So you have this doc file which can have its own text and it has, "Hey, here's a link that has some more stuff that's relevant to this document." And that link uh, references a URL that's HTTPS, like you would expect, that says, "Go out, use web-based protocol, and see what's there." And that URL brings down an HTML file, and that HTML file contains some, in this case, obfuscated, but apparently harmless JavaScript code. But that JavaScript code references another URL, but this one is not HTTPS, like you might expect. It's a weird URL, which is ms-msdt colon, instead of HTTPS colon. Hmm. Now, I'd never heard of that before, to be honest. I've certainly never seen one. Uh, And so as far as I can tell, I've never used or needed to use one. But it turns out that actually, if you have that URL, it's a special Windows thing that says, oh, what this means is that the person actually wants to do some troubleshooting. So you should load this MSDT, Microsoft Support Diagnostic Tool.exe. So if you've ever on on Windows seen a thing called the Program Compatibility Troubleshooter, that is MSDT.exe. And it turns out you can have a document that has some HTML, that has some JavaScript, that has this weird but harmless looking URL that actually causes this diagnostic toolkit to spring into life on your computer. So you open the document, the diagnostic toolkit comes to life, and what these crooks figured out is that you can use the diagnostic toolkit that normally comes up with a whole lot of dialogues you want to proceed Are you sure? And it asks you a whole load of stuff. Do you want to submit this to Microsoft? Do you want to do it online? Do you want to save in the file? So it's all pretty obvious that you're being taken through these steps. They found out that actually you can embed into the command line of this MSDT thing. Not only can you say, actually, I'd like to run calc.exe and pop a calculator. You can actually say, oh, here's some PowerShell in source code form. I'd like you to run that. (laughs) Essentially, send in shell code. Send in what amounts to executable code. And it all gets run under the guise of doing giant air quotes here diagnostic stuff.
0: Does it work kind of like a macro? Except it doesn't. You you're 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 up the creek even if you have macros turned off. It's still gonna. That's actually
1: probably one of the more important aspects of this, Doug. What I've described, you know, there's there's HTML and there's web fetching and there's this MS MSDT and diagnostic toolkit running all from a doc file. And I think what a lot of people think, okay. When code does get triggered, whether it's a web download or a a diagnostic toolkit launch, executable launch from a doc file or an XLS file or a PowerPoint file or whatever, it does require macros to be enabled. I've got macros turned off. So no matter how bad this sounds, I bet it won't trigger on my computer. And in fact, it has nothing to do with macros at all. Office macros, as Visual Basic for Applications, do not come into it. I mean, those are dangerous because that's a way that you take the executable code in, written in, in, in VBA, Visual Basic for Applications, and you embed it in the document in a special section, yeah. and it comes to life and runs. Clearly, that's dangerous, but actually, this does not require a macro to help it along. So there's no macro code that has to launch that says... Now, download the HTML, now trigger the diagnostic toolkit, now feed it the PowerShell. That's all done by Office itself processing the document so you can view it. And worse, as a researcher called John Hammond from Huntress discovered, there are circumstances in which you don't even need to open the document. Wow. Instead of putting a doc file, you put it in an RTF, a rich text file. If you then browse to that file, say with File Explorer, You know that files have thumbnails, which are normally little images that are embedded in the file, but Mm -hmm. you can also have a preview pane where Windows kind of pseudo-renders the document a bit to a low fidelity in a small window. Usually, it doesn't go the whole hog. So, you know, if you had a, a doc file, it wouldn't run macros in there. It would just try and get an idea of what it looked like, maybe show you the title. In this case... If you had an RTF file that had this trick in it, this Folina trick in it, then just the preview pane could be enough to run the PowerShell code to do what the bad guys want. Wow.
0: And so it looks like um, there's no fix for this yet, but there is a workaround.
1: Yes, it's hard to fix things where both parts of it are features. (laughs) (laughs) You know, hey, it would be handy to have this URL to say, well, this is what we want to do. And a diagnostic tool, that's very helpful. And it's so obvious, like, how could you use that for bad? Windows is full of utilities that turn out to have secondary functions that were put in because it seemed like a good idea that you can use to evade notice. So no, there is not a fix, but Microsoft has confirmed what essentially the cybersecurity community already knew or strongly suspected. Basically, there's a very easy change you can make in the registry. And I believe you can do this if you're a sysadmin with group policy, if you're running a Windows network. There's a trivial change you can make in the Windows registry that basically breaks the connection between these MS-MSDT URLs and the launching of the diagnostic toolkit. So you can still use the diagnostic toolkit if you need to, by finding it and running it by hand on your computer in the same way that you can run any program. That's your choice. And you can still have these URLs without causing any trouble. There's just no interconnection between the two. And so we've got instructions in the Naked Security article, several different ways of doing that, depending on how confident slash competent you are with various tools. But Windows includes regedit and also a program called reg.exe. So certainly if you're at home, this is, as far as I'm concerned, a no-risk fix, and it's very, very easy to do. And if you're an administrator on a network, well, you can just back up this key off one person's computer. I think that it's always the same on every computer. And then you can just make this change with group policy, and you kind of immunize yourself against what you might consider a clear and present danger.
0: And also, for the record, we have some self-host products that deal with this particular
1: hole. We do. Uh, our endpoint products can detect and block the known files that launch this attack. In other words, if you think that these files of this sort may have been around in your network, you can go and check your logs and you know, look for the, the name string. It's in the article. I won't read it out here. It's long and uninteresting. So you can check for evidence not only of the doc file that might have a dodgy URL to start with, But we'll also spot the HTML that comes back that has the JavaScript that triggers the whole MS, MSDT colon thing. So that will give you some idea of of any indicators of compromise. And also, of course, if you can't open the document in the first place, or if it can't get through your firewall, because the firewall will also scan the documents on the way through your mail filter, then you can't get infected in the first place. We also have detection in the behavior blocking part of our endpoint products. So if they see an Office product that where you're trying to load a document seems to be trying to start the diagnostic tool, which is astonishingly unusual and deeply suspicious, then we'll just go, no, you can't do that. And we will prevent the sub-process from running, which means the file will still open, still be able to read the document, modify the document, do what you want with it, but it won't be able to start a secret diagnostic toolkit executable in the background that even if it's well-intentioned, it's probably a crazy idea. You don't expect to open a document and suddenly be in the middle of a diagnostic session. (laughs) Um, And then lastly, we have uh, uh, some filtering options that will help our email and web filtering products stop this stuff getting through in the first place.
0: All right, very good. That is uh, Mysterious Folina, Zero Day Hole in Office. Here's what to do on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And uh, let us quickly promote some of our other articles we have up on the site right now, starting with the very alliterative Poisoned Python and PHP Packages Perloin Passwords for AWS Access.
1: Yes, probably spent longer on that headline than (laughs) was strictly necessary. (laughs) Because you get stuck once you get to Perloin Passwords because the problem with AWS is you can't make it start with the letter P. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, this is just another little story about a supply chain attack. Who would have thought? But I thought this one was interesting because it's a fascinating reminder of some of what you might call the boutique or artisan parts of the cybercrime underground. This is a poison package where somebody took a package that hadn't been updated in a while in the Python repository. And then another related one was found in in a PHP repository based on looking for code commonalities by the person who found this, who was a researcher called Yi Ching Tok at SANS. Basically, the idea of whoever took over this particular account to put in the poison package was to add some code which would retrieve things like AWS access keys, which is exactly one of the tricks that people were using the log for shell hole to do, if you remember. What's interesting is the way that this particular account was compromised. It seems that what this crook or crooks did, or maybe this is part of their general MO, is that, I guess, they'd gone through a load of Python packages. They'd found out domain names that maintainers were using for email. They'd flagged all the accounts that had not been Updated lately, you know, this one hadn't been updated for several years. And then they just kept their eye on those domain names waiting for them to expire. And in this case, it just so happened. Now, this is only circumstantial evidence, but it, it seems to tie in nicely. Pretty much as soon as this guy's domain name expired, the crooks registered it, set up a mail server, sent themselves the password reset email, took over the account, and did an mm. update that didn't change the version number, presumably hoping that people go, oh, wow. Obviously, somebody's taken over the project in good faith. Oh, look, they've they've reissued things, but they haven't changed the version number. They're probably just tidying up. I might not look further. It's their crooks, it seems. His job is, let's just wait for account takeover opportunities to drop into our lap. When that happens, let's poison some code and see which victims fall into our lap. And then... Let's put those passwords or those access tokens up for sale. And then somebody else who does want to do a targeted attack can target that person. So you kind of end up getting targeted in the end. But the original crook that went after your password didn't really care whether it was you or your neighbor or someone on the other side of the world. Your account, if you like, was in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: All right. And then we have Beware the Smish, home delivery scams with a professional feel. And boy, is this a good looking scam.
1: Yes, I... This was reported by a loyal naked security reader. I think their their mum got this particular one. And this is a UK specific because it targets a particular brand called Every. It's a home delivery company, it's a legit company, I was thinking of you when I wrote this article, Doug. It is, a, <laughs> it is a nine and a half out of 10, isn't it? It's pretty good, yeah. I mean, the domain's wrong, but it's not like weird, wacky, made-up, random domain name because other people had got all the good ones, dot, country that gives away domains for free. They registered every, EVRI, the name of the company, dash, and then a few characters, dot com. This SMS was sent at 6:30 in the morning, and the domain it used had been registered quite literally the day before. So it was obviously registered for this particular attack. Like you said, it it looks dead right. And if you go to that article, I've I've shown a bit at the end. It switches you from the fake site to the landing page of the real site for sort of verisimilitude, and so you can't go back to the fake site. And I made a little animated. GIF slash GIF of that transition point, uh, just to show people how similar they were. And actually, I just realized looking at it now, when you stare at that animated file, the it's not that the icon is close. It doesn't even move left or right by one pixel on the fake screen. It's exactly the same. Yeah. They've copied everything perfectly. They say, Oh, there's a re charge, one pound forty five in this case. It's usually about three dollars or less, equivalent to thereof. I think a lot of people go, you know what, $3, it's not a lot to lose. And anyway, I'll complain to the credit card company, I'll get my money back. The crooks aren't after the $3. They're not even going to try and put that transaction through. They don't care about $3. What they want is the personally identifiable information. So you can get your $3 back, (laughs) but you can't get your birthday back and your mobile phone number back and your account number back and your CVV code back. And that's really what they're after. So keep your wits about you, folks. And if in doubt, don't give it out.
0: Excellent. And then we have Who's Watching Your Webcam, the Screencastify Chrome extension story. I thought this was a fascinating look. And an answer to the question, how safe are those uh, browser extensions? Because those are very popular. A lot of people have at least a couple extensions loaded up.
1: Yes, very popular. This Screencastify app, which is basically a way of recording your screen and taking a webcam Webcam footage at the same time, and there's no particular problem with screencastify. I'm not trying to pick on them. It's just that the researcher who wrote this. Uh, he's a, a German fellow, I believe, called uh, Vladimir Palant. He's an extension developer himself. I think he is responsible for um, AdBlock Plus. So he knows a lot about about web extensions. And because this is super super popular, uh, he thought, well, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder how they did their extension. And he started looking. And he noticed, quite unsurprisingly, because this extension is backed by a cloud-based service at screencastify.com, it includes pre-allocated permissions in what's called the manifest for the extension that explicitly say which websites are allowed to interact with the extension remotely. So it doesn't mean they're able to download codes. It's not like a traditional supply chain attack where a downloads something from B, but actually B got it from C, and C got it from D, and D is licensing it from F, and it's come through all these websites, and any one of them, the content could have been modified along the way, traditional idea of a, of a, a more physical idea of a supply chain attack. He was just thinking, well, their website, sure, you're going to trust them. You, you want to use their service. You've already crossed that bridge. You've decided, yes, I trust them. Clearly, it doesn't seem controversial for them to say, well, any screencastify.com so star.screencastify.com to use what's called a, a glob you know searched to him where the star means match anything at this point it seems uncontroversial but he looked a bit further and he found that actually six of the six of their popular subdomains so that's things like the status checker um, online training marketing stuff and support and things like that have subdomains that are actually run by third party websites and so any of those websites in theory because it's star.screencastify.com could also reach back to your browser and do things like turn on your webcam access your google drive files because the extension also saves your files to google drive so that you can back up your videos it's very handy There's nothing wrong with any of the companies in there. None of them are devious or untrustworthy. But he just suddenly realized, crikey, there's actually, there are a lot of single points of failure. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing with extensions is they're not limited like HTML or JavaScript in your browser normally is, where it's limited to your domain and the content that you served up and one particular tab or window. An extension can actually interact with the system to the point of, activating your webcam, reading and writing files, requesting the system to give access tokens for, say, your Google Drive ID and stuff. To be fair to Screencastify, after the article came out, they actually obviously decided, yeah, maybe he's right. We should be more explicit about what we mean. And now they actually list exactly five subdomains by name Those are the sites that can access. And you think, well, big deal. Does that make a difference? And actually, the answer is the principle of least privilege or need to know says, yes, it's actually an interesting change and we can all learn from it. If somebody actually wants to go and check, okay, where does this authority get delegated to? They can get an explicit list instead of, oh, well, it could be anybody. And so we can't exhaustively tell you. And I just thought that was—it's a great way of highlighting, if you like, these sort of virtual supply chain risks. That a third party or a fourth party or a fifth party—they might not be sending code to your computer that's been modified along the way, but they might be able to reach in through a knitting needle-sized hole that was created with a specific purpose, but use it for something else. Just like the MS—MSDT colon URL in the fateful of vulnerability in Windows. It's not what it was supposed to be for, but somebody found a way to create a document that would use it in a devious and untrustworthy fashion. All right,
0: very good. Check out all those articles on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay secure.